If you want to open to Genesis chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. We're in a series that broadly deals with human sexuality. So um, sometimes your sexuality or my sexuality is more than just sex, right? It's how we view ourselves. And so to really... How we view ourselves as fitting into the world as either a man or a woman. And that is a very complicated ball of yarn. And uh, you ever try to untangle something like a ball of yarn and you think you have it, so you pull? And it, it, instead of getting freedom, it binds down on itself and you're like, oh. Then you give it to somebody else to figure out, right? Uh, understanding ourselves, uh, I mean, our full sexuality and how God made us is kind of like a ball of yarn. And today we're going to be kind of in the land of obvious. Um, but I also think we're living in a land where obvious has to be said. So, um, yeah, so we'll get started. Let me tell you about my dog, my old dog, my first dog. He was a mutt. He was a male pit bull lab mix. And he kind of looked tough. He looked like a junkyard dog a little bit. <clears throat> now, when people heard that their dog was part pit bull, we typically got two kinds of responses. There was a group that said, watch out like it's in them. You don't know. You just don't know what those dogs, what they might do. And then you had a group of, uh, the other response would come from people, and oftentimes these people were a little more like rescue, dog rescue oriented, but they would say, uh, you know, well, just, just raise it right, raise it right. People, a lot of people take pit bulls and do things with them, but hey, raise it right, and it's actually a very stable dog. And fortunately, we had a very stable, gentle dog. Um, but that kind of brings to mind this question of was what makes, what makes the dog what it is? Is it, is it innate to it? Or is it instilled into it? You know, if you put my dog next to a poodle, the, the difference would be obvious, okay? But all that difference, is all that difference innate or is some of that difference instilled? We could ask this about humans too. Give you a human example. About seven or eight years ago, I had to sit uh, jury duty up in Chester County Courthouse. I was called as part of a slate of jurors for a murder one case. And I ended up being excused from service. But the original slate of people they called, they called a hundred jurors into the courtroom to be vetted. The judge, and I might have the numbers off a little bit, but I think I'm about right here. I remember the judge saying he's never dealt with this large slate of potential jurors. And so they brought us all into a room, gave us all a number. I think I was 14. And they would go around the room and, and questions would be asked and through the way that questions were answered, they, would, they sought to whittle that number of 100 down to 12 plus alternates. And I will never forget a particular question that was asked. It, it was really the only one I can remember. <clears throat> and the question was, have you or any of your immediate relatives ever been convicted of a crime, like a, a real crime? jail time type. And in a room of 100, 
38 people raised their hand. And I remember being so impacted by that. Like, wow, 38% of a randomly selected group of people either have or are immediately related to someone with a criminal record. That really struck me. But then what they did next was, what they did with each question is just then they went from juror to juror. Whatever jurors raised their hand, they went to them to get an explanation. What was the situation? So one person might say, well, yeah, I, I got caught using marijuana. So next person, so on down the road. Well, they went through, of the 38 people who raised their hand, you know, whether it was them or their, or their relative, 37 of the 38, the criminal was male. Male, not female. Male. That floored me. We're not the same. We're different. The difference is patently obvious. The question is, what's the root of the difference? Is the difference between men and women, <clears throat> is it innate or is it instilled? Is it wired? Or is it taught? That's kind of what we're going we're gonna to set out to do today is understand that a little bit. More to the point of understanding, what, you know, we're on our way over several Sundays to begin to kind of, again, unravel the very difficult parts of what parts of my maleness are, in, or your femaleness, depending on who you are, was put there by God versus put there by others. Uh, helpful, not helpful. What do I do with that? And we're going to ask this question, and the reason I think we need to start at the obvious is because there are some pretty significant cultural forces at work right now. And one of these, it's, it's like a wave through culture. It has the, it tends to attribute differences to outside forces or outside systems. This way of thinking is becoming uh, standard. That things aren't the way they are, and the reason is, is because an outside force or an outside system. So we see this in the public square on the conversation of race. There's this, the problem is systems and forces. We see this in other areas, and we, we also see this when we get to the subject of gender and sexuality. So there are some pretty strict forms of feminism which would say, strongly believe in gender uniformity, role rejection, and gender autonomy as the baseline to understand your sexuality. In other words, gender uniformity meaning the man and the woman are essentially the same. Essentially the same. You could crank up the hormones or crank up the steroids and you can pretty much get the same thing. But for the most part, we are, the, the idea is we're the same and what makes us different is culture. And they would go on to say, for that reason and that reason alone, we should reject entirely all distinctive roles for men and women. Because a distinctive role is merely a cultural construct that's being impressed upon you for someone to preserve power from someone else. That, that would be the idea. Okay, And because of that, you are autonomous without the other gender. We do not need each other if we're the same and if our differences are only cultural constructs. 
I don't need you, and you don't need me. Now, whether or not we agree with that, and I don't, by the way, but whether or not we do agree with it, it is at work in our culture, which makes, uh, I would say, a, a message on something that is otherwise fairly obvious necessary. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the ideal. We're going to start with God's created form, his pre-fallen state, and we're going to kind of be attentive to what did God innately do to us? Is there meaningful difference between the two of us? And then we'll, we'll, over the next several weeks, we'll head that way. That's our goal. So in order to do that, we're, we're in Genesis 2, but I do want to show one, one passage from Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 1 is the creation of, of all things, right? It's the six-day narrative about how the world and everything in it's made. On the sixth day, man is, uh, mankind is created. It's the crowning glory of the sixth day, which is the most elaborate crowning glory of the whole creative process. And you, we end in, this is the 27th verse, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he goes on to talk about what God did. He blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. So all pretty, pretty interesting imperatives. Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. That's what's charged to mankind. We, you might see us as kind of lords of the earth, or at least the chief stewards of God's creation. That's Genesis 1. And then we get to Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 is kind of almost like a flashback or a rollback. Uh, the story goes back into the creative process and says, hey, while God was making the world, let me tell you how it actually went down, kind of at a granular uh, surface level way. And the story accounts for how man was actually made. And that's where we're going to pick up. So let's look at Genesis 2, and I'll pick up in verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We'll stop there. <clears throat> God forms man. You might say that's the point of, of that long sentence. God forms the man. This idea of forming him out of the ground and breathing the breath of life, it sort of conveys the notion that uh, God gets the credit for all that the man is. God didn't walk past a cake and put a cherry on top and take credit. God reaches down to the earth. The pic, you know, the picture is he's responsible for everything that the man is. 
Now, in this section, we can infer something that is going to be explicitly made clear in a moment. So I'm going to say it, and you may not see it here, but it's not only is it true, it's an important part of the story, and it's this, that the man is all by himself. At this point, only the man exists. There is no such thing as the woman. Okay? What's interesting about that, if you just think about it, is, is this account defies one of the most obvious realities in all the animal kingdom. And you don't have to be like 2022 sophisticated to pick up on it, right? A toothless nomad with a scroll of Genesis in 2000 BC would go, would also recognize, I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to know that usually you have males and females of a species. That's how it works. So it's, this account is intentionally taking a very bizarre turn in the narrative. When do you not have a male and a female? You always have a male and a female. It's a more bizarre question than which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And yet we ask that one. But here we have a man and no woman. Now sometimes people, <clears throat> and I, I don't know which one you are, I, I think actually, I don't think it matters in this case, but some people read Genesis very, very literally. <clears throat> so they read this and they think this is exactly how it went down. And the meaning grows out of that literal truth. Others take a more allegorical approach to the Genesis account and say, well, it's not really describing what necessarily had to scientifically have happened. What's happening is God is telling a story that's conveying some certain truths. If, if that's you, I just want you to know you haven't gotten any, far away, any farther away from the striking reality that the story made a man without a woman. In fact, to me, the more allegorical you take it, the more striking the detail is. Because the writer's going out of his way to do it. The original man is alone. It's worth noting. Okay, we're gonna go on, but I have one brief aside to do before we go on, uh, and it's related. <clears throat> verse five, if you look at verse five, it says, hey, it hadn't rained yet, and it says, and there was no man to work the ground. You see that? <clears throat> now, that's what it says in the ESV. It's what it says in most translations. No man to work the ground. But some of you might have a translation in here that it doesn't say that. It says no one to work the ground. If you're looking at the NIV off your phone, okay, some digital copy of the NIV, it's gonna say no one to work the ground. Or if you happen to have a recent publication of the NIV Bible, it'll say no one to work the ground. So I'm going somewhere with this. The 1984 copyright of the NIV says no man to work the ground, but the 2011 copyright of the NIV says no one to work the ground. Well, what is it? The word is Adam. It's Adam. It's man. If you go to verse seven, where God makes the man into a living being, that word is Adam. What I'm saying is, is someone made a translational decision in verse five 
to say instead of there was no man to work the ground. Uh, really what's being said there is there's nobody around to work the ground. Kind of like if, if I go into the kitchen and I see the full trash can, all right, there's no one to take the trash out. I'm not, you know, my daughter is as much a target as my son's. Actually, that's not true. I probably would look to my boys first, but there's this, I, I'm not technically saying there's no man to take the trash out. No one, right? The, 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 there's someone coming in here saying, this, this is a distinction without a difference. That's the point. What I want you to appreciate is the very forces at work of saying there really is no fundamental difference between him and her are showing up in the way the Bible is being translated. I actually would say, fundamentally, it should say man there. Because the idea of working the ground becomes his assignment. So in verse five, there's no man to work the ground. A little later, God's gonna place him in the garden to work the ground and care for it. And when he receives the curse in Genesis three, you know who's gonna be cursed? His working of the ground. In other words, it's a purposeful statement that has, if read as no one, is stripped of purpose. Okay, it's an aside, but it's a perfect case in point. And the 2011 NIV does that a bunch of times all the way through this translation. It, it approached retranslating the Bible with a way of tamping down distinction between men and women. Okay, now we can keep going. 15. The man's alone, and here's what it says. Well, I mean, I'm skipping, okay? I'm skipping the garden for time. God makes a really, really nice garden. Paradise. A couple trees in it, tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sitting together in the midst of the garden, in the center, okay? So... It's an awesome place, and we'll pick up in 15. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, a few things to see here. <clears throat> One, we, you might have just to assume with me because I did some skipping, but all through this account, God is doing stuff. God made the man, God made the garden, God made the rivers, God made the trees, God's making this tree and that tree and all these trees. God's doing these things, makes the garden. All right, so there's this, it's an account of an extremely active, positively active God who's assigning things to the man. God made the man, he formed the man, he placed the man he commissions the man, he places him to work it and care for it. So he formed, placed, purposed the man, and then he commands the man. You can eat from anything you want, just not that one tree. Okay, it's in a garden with a zillion awesome trees. You can eat from a zillion minus one awesome trees. Just not that one. So there's this, this command, but what I, it's kind of couched in, in God's design. And, you know, if we were gonna, if our study was on Genesis, we probably would spend a lot more time on this tree. For, for the time that we have, I'd say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, in my mind, the institution, the idea in the garden that makes way for worship. It's the only thing in the garden that makes a dictate of man, which is, by obeying me, you recognize I'm God and you're not. 
This is the only thing. Everything else the man is Lord of. On that one, the man has to remember the Lord. And it's a way, it just shows how free choice is at the bedrock of worship. Okay? So that's 12, 15 through 17. What I want us to appreciate before we go is, is all of what I just read, all of that happened to the man in his exclusive existence. He at present is alone. He was formed, placed, purposed, and commanded by himself. Okay? <clears throat> we know that because of the next verse. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord said, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, not found a helper fit for him. Okay. Again, because we were not reading the whole thing with the sense of continuity, this, a very jarring phrase might have been lost on us. And that jarring phrase is not good. Not good. If you started in Genesis 1 and read, what you would hear is a consistent, a strong, consistent rhythm of the word good. And God said, and he saw, and it was good. And God, now the first day, and God said, and he saw, and it was good. And God said, and he saw, and it was good. It does that. In fact, it does it in the first chapter, okay? And, and Hebrew poetry is very attentive to numbers. Uh, in the first story, in the Genesis 1 account, the idea of good shows up seven times, and on the seventh one, it's very good, okay? It's elegant. It's an elegant poem. It's just beautiful, Okay, And then it continues to go, and you hear good, 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 good. The garden's good, everything's pleasing, good to eat. Okay, And then you get to, but incidentally, the twelfth good is not good. This is it's not good for the man to be alone. If, if we were reading it carefully, it would, it would grab us. It would make us perk up and go, wait a second. Not good. What's going on here? So what does the not good mean in context? I, I think it's something like this. That if the Lord were to stop creation here with all of the world and everything in it with the exclusive alone man, that something would not be quite right. Something would still be lacking. Something would be amiss. We might imagine that if man is made in the image of God, God cannot stop yet. Otherwise, something is missing. We might say that just in the same way that the Lord is in himself in community, the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? There's, there seems to be an expressed community and relationship of the divine Godhead. You might say that it's insufficient to stop with man in his exclusive existence. Something like that. If God's gonna make it good, he can't stop yet. Something like that. Something is wrong with the solitary man. Now we could say, what is not good specifically here? What does he specifically say is not good? And the answer is, it's man's aloneness, not his loneliness. 
The man is not complaining. In fact, we should note, the man does not make any input into this thought yet. God determines what is wrong. There's no sense from the text that the Lord's saying, so what do you think, Adam? And Adam's like, well, it's pretty boring. Can you give me something with a nice figure? You know, that I, I can hang out with? There's no, none of that, none of that. We should appreciate this, by the way, because there's probably a way where God is always hovering over you, knowing what's not good in your life and maybe working, working over you and through you to bring change that you might not even be aware of. The man has not identified his aloneness as a problem. He's not lonely. God has determined it's not good that he's alone. And what's the answer? The answer is a suitable helper. A suitable helper. And you can say, well, what's a suitable helper? And this brings us to the verses 19 and 20, this parade of the animal kingdom. So the Lord brings this parade before Adam of the animal kingdom. It shows us a few things. It reminds us of Adam's lordship, right? He's playing, he's playing king of the garden, okay? He's the grand steward of the paradise of God, right? Whatever the man says, the animal's called, that is its name, right? And it's a way of, of the lordship of the man in, in this realm that he's been given to work and care for, okay? So the man is being what God made him to be, and all of the animal kingdom is paraded before him, and at the end of that, it becomes clear that of all that God has made, there's nothing that has been made that is suitable for the man. There's no suitable helper to be found. The unsuitability of every living creature is worth noting, right? Nothing satisfies. Now, I think most of us are familiar with the story. We know where it's going, right? She's about to show up, okay? So if you're familiar, I just want you to take a second to think, who benefits the most? Who's really benefiting from this careful tell of the story? Who's God really protecting and elevating through this careful tell of the story? Okay, in a world where the Old Testament is gonna tell stories like last Sunday of just tragic, tragic broken maleness and what people will call toxic masculinity or chauvinism, right? The Old Testament's gonna be full of stories that are not quite right, okay? And the stories are not gonna be describing God. The story's gonna be describing fallen man in his world, okay? So we're entering an ancient world that is full of problems, particularly between men and women, very patriarchal, right? I'm not trying to defend any of that. I'm happy to display it out for all of its truth. I just want you to know that in the entry to the ancient story, the, one of the first stories, the Lord is carefully telling a story that is progressively elevating the existence of the woman to a place that the ancient world will not recognize. I'm just saying, those people don't write this story. God does. Let's see what happens. 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, 
took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. <clears throat> then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man, these details, I think all of these details are important. First of all, she is made from him. That's, what, that's the name, woman, from man. In other, in other words, she's not a totally different creature. The Lord did not go back to the drawing board, go back to the dirt and create something up, right, where there'd be this, uh, who's, who's the better, right, that would breed, you might imagine, a natural competition between these ideas. He doesn't do that. He puts him down and removes part of him, right? She is him. She's him. Just appreciate the weight of this. In the kind of the early church era, they had this council, this council of Nicaea. <clears throat> and in this council, they were trying to kind of bring together what are the, some of the views of Christianity that we as every Christian in the world can agree upon. They called it an ecumenical council. And they ended up having this long discussion over how does the, Jesus the Son, God the Son, and God the Father, how do they relate with one another? Are they equal? And there was a strong view that they were equal. And they used a word to describe that. It's in the creed. Of the same substance. Of the same substance. There was this big debate. Do we say of like substance? They said, no, no, no. The debate was, they, they talk about this big debate over one letter, the letter, what we would call I. Because in the Greek word, of like substance or of the same substance. And they came with, Jesus is what, very God, very light, of the same substance of the Father. So is she. She's of the same substance as he is. It's really elevating. It screams equal. Okay? She's him. Many, many years later, Paul the Apostle is going to be writing in Ephesians, instructing husbands, hey, here's how to love your wives. Love your wives, love your wives, love your wives. And he's going to say it this way. After all, no man ever hated his own flesh. You hear that? He's got this moment in mind. Why would you treat her in a way that you wouldn't treat yourself? You're of the same flesh. She, however, so what we see in these details is she is made from him, in other words, of equal substance, but she is not him. She's not a duplicate. They're not the same thing. And what I'm about to say, I'm not saying this to be kind of snarky. I, it's strange. The, well, I'll just say it. The pronouns matter here in the text. God takes something out of him and brings back her. That's the Hebrew. So there's this notion, if we just get away from like, what is a him and what is a her? Let's just at least note, a her is not a him in this account. I'm just saying in the Hebrew, there's, 
God made them, in the image, God made man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All of a sudden, in the Hebrew story, there's something that's co-equal to the man, but now we need a whole new vocabulary to describe her. She's not a him. I'm just talking about this, and listen, my heart is a million miles away from trying to like score a point here. I'm just saying, like, there is a distinction that is baked in to this story. She's equal and she's different. Okay. Twenty-four. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <clears throat> it's such a full idea, the idea of being one flesh. You, you know, these like individual sermons, you could just talk the whole time. What does it mean to be of one flesh? You could say it, it has a connotation of intimacy. It has a connotation of wholeness, like shalom. Okay, if he's not good when, by being alone... When he and she come together, they represent, right? The man-woman represent the human. That's the idea. Wholeness, wholeness, societal wholeness is not intended to be found simply in you, but rather God has built in the creative ideal that the she's and the he's come together, but you know, particularly in marriage, but generally in society. And in doing that, we round out the human identity. I need her and she needs me. It might be another way of just saying this is also very, very good. Very good. Okay, so what can we kind of Let's step back from the text now and say, what can we assemble to kind of move us on our way? I think there's, in the ideal, in the ideal, and we should note, by the way, okay, this is going to break away from your, the scientific process for a second. In the biblical worldview, we do not start with primitive and head to sophisticated. We start with the ideal, and then there's a fall. Okay? So I'm not talking human 1.0 as though we're 2.0. If this is human 1.0, we're human 0.10, okay? We've fallen off our pedestal and we're scratching and clawing back to the garden. So I don't want us to think, well, we've advanced from the position of Adam. Well, we may have advanced in certain ways from Cain and Abel, but not from Adam in the garden. This is the idyllic position of the human. Here's what we can see. They are co-equal, they are intertwined, and they are exquisite in their original design. Okay, these three things. They're co-equal, intertwined, and exquisite in their original design. By co-equal, I mean they're of the same substance and they are suitable for one another. They contribute to one another's identity. The common cultural vulgar way is to sort of pit man against woman. Anything you can do, I can do better. Remember that musical, right? right? To pit us against one another, this sense of competition. 
This is beneath the Lord. And it is not part of his design. We are equal in the way we were made. Okay? We are also intertwined, meaning we're purposefully different. God did not make another version of Adam. In order to complete Adam, God made a woman. We're purposefully different, like two puzzle pieces, right? Which puzzle piece is better? They're equal. But when they come together, we get the picture. That's the idea here, right? Man and woman are unique and complementary. Mankind, the man-woman, is very good. The man-woman united. And that's seen particularly in marriage, but it's generally true. It's generally true. This is why, by the way, to understand sexuality, to please God with sexuality is not what do I do with the word sex, nor is it what do I do with my role as a husband or a wife. It's, it's, it's not even necessarily what do I do with my orientation. God wants us to know, I'm a man, what does that mean? Or I'm a woman, what does that mean? That's where God's calling us. They're intertwined. And lastly, they're exquisite in their original form. This is the ideal. This isn't a primitive version. This is the ideal. So over the next several weeks, we'll kind of apply ourselves to some specifics. What does this mean about masculinity or femininity? But I want, us to, I want, to, I want to kind of catch something before it really gets too far, which is the habit of seeing a sinful version of masculinity uh, and then uh, condemning the whole thing, or a broken version of femininity and condemning the whole thing. Like The idea that what's wrong with us is our difference runs against the grain of God's word. And I know, I know that all the things about, I'll just pick on myself, everything about my manness is, is, is fallen. I mean, there's nothing about me that's perfect. I make sounds my wife hates and I smell, right? Like, there's plenty of things about my masculinity that someone might call toxic, and they might be right, okay? I, I, but you don't make me a better man by killing my distinctiveness. You make me a better man by redeeming it. And you don't become a better woman by stopping, just, just letting go of femininity you become a better woman by redeeming it. God is in the business of redeeming masculinity and femininity, not cropping them out, not making us the same. When we make ourselves the same, what we essentially say is, I have no need of you. I'm very good all by myself. And you're not. God made us to be in need. If we ever want to approach very good, we have a need for each other to complement it which means we really need to be on the journey of going, I want to know what godly masculinity is and I want to know what godly femininity is and I want it in full measure in the church of God. That's what we want. And that's where we'll head. So we'll do that. We'll do that in these next several weeks. It matters, by the way, because all through the Bible again and again, the Lord's going to say things like, hey, I'm the father of your children, but now we need to understand that. Or I'm the groom and you're the bride. God cannot use those things and help us if we don't know what they mean. Let's go to the Lord. Come on. <clears throat> Lord.
as we step forward from the obvious perhaps to the less obvious, help us. Help us by our pursuit, Lord. Maybe help us to release any defensiveness uh, that might exist from a former argument or a former experience. Help us to release, uh, give us freedom perhaps from scars and wounds that have warped who we've become. Even now, Lord, perhaps we need to begin prayers of forgiveness to those who've made impact in our life that sent us the wrong way. Lord, as we begin to confront these things with our eyes wide open, we pray you fill us with grace and mercy, not just for ourselves, but for others, so that we can, in fact, raise up these young ladies that we dedicated this morning to be true, godly women of the Lord. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.